Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. Back in the day when uh, sailors were on ships with actual sails, it was uh, a very dangerous endeavor to go out onto the oceans. And uh, there are all sorts of perils. Many ships were lost at sea, and uh, many sailors lost their lives due to all sorts of different circumstances. But to add to the troubles of being out at sea, uh, many sailors would come down with a disease. And uh, at first, it might be a little mild, and uh, sailors would complain of uh, sore joints and things like that. As time went on, the symptoms would get worse, their skin would bruise easily, gums would bleed, their teeth and hair would start to fall out, old wounds would reopen, and left untreated, these sailors would eventually decline, ultimately, unto death. It's been estimated that this disease killed more than 2 million sailors between the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. And on a lengthy voyage, it would be common for the crew to be cut in half because of this disease. Vasco da Gama lost 116 of his 170 men on his first voyage to India in 1499. In 1744, George Anson, uh, he went on a four-year voyage around the earth, and he started with 1,854 men. He returned with only 188 of those original. He lost 90%. One of the lucky survivors, if we could call him that, uh, survived but still lost all of his teeth and all of his hair. So here is this problem, this big dilemma, this disease that is striking all of these sailors. So one man, uh, a Royal Navy surgeon, his name was James Lynn, decided, you know what, I am going to figure out how to cure this disease. And so he began to do some different experiments. And uh, he had heard that if you began to have some, if you ate some citrus fruit, that it would cure this disease. And so he thought, well, let's, let's see. People were coming up with all sorts of different clues and ideas and solutions. And so he began what has been recognized as the first randomized clinical trial. If you hear about medical experiments and new drugs, you'll talk about randomized clinical trials. Well, James Lind was the first to do it. So after being out at sea for two months, uh, the sailors began to show symptoms of this disease. And so he made sure that everybody received the same care, the same food, the same diet, all of the different things, and he gave six different possible treatments. The first was, uh, they were given cider. The second was diluted sulfuric acid. The third was vinegar. The fourth was seawater. The fifth was a paste of plant extracts. And the last group of two received two oranges and a lemon a day. So here are these 12 sailors paired in groups of two, and each of these pairs received something different from all of the other sailors in the experiment. 
And lo and behold, the group that received the oranges and the lemon recovered and showed that if you want to prevent the disease, you can get citrus fruit and give it to the sailors and they will recover. Uh, some initially viewed it as being a little strange. Um, the, during the War of 1812, U.S. soldiers ridiculed the Royal Navy's uh, practice and called them limeys. And uh, if you read a little history, you may have heard that term before. That's where it comes from. So ultimately, they figured out how to cure the disease. The disease is scurvy. The cause of the disease, a lack of vitamin C. Now today, we know a lot about vitamins. You might take vitamins every day. You might make sure that there's enough vitamins in the different foods that you eat. If you're sick, you might take a, a tea or add some things and uh, you might buy a big bag of oranges or something and uh, get some lemons, squeeze it into your, your different drinks. Uh, but they didn't know that. So vitamin C cures this disease or keeps this disease away. But do you know how much vitamin C you need a day to survive? 40 milligrams. 40 milligrams is less than a grain of salt. If you cut a grain of salt and you go to a restaurant, you know, you put salt on your food or whatever, you go home and you season your food, take one of those grains of salt, cut it in half and think, that's how much vitamin C I need to survive. If I don't have that amount of vitamin C, I will die. Which I think reiterates the point that we made before, which is little things can make a big difference. Tiny little minuscule things that you're thinking, this is such a small thing in such a small amount Surely I could survive without this tiny amount of vitamin C. It's just 40 milligrams. What's so special about it? But of course, we all know how vital having vitamin C is in our lives. And also to understand that maybe we might think of some things in the spiritual life as spiritual vitamins. Things that might seem small, but are very important to our survival to life, to have strength. Little tiny things that you might think, that's not a big deal. What's so big about that? Uh, that seems like such a tiny minuscule thing and yet can have a great impact on our lives. So I wanna see a few more of these little things to make sure we do not neglect them. The first of which is settled boundaries to have settled boundaries. Verse number eight says, he that diggeth a pit shall fall into it, and whoso breaketh an hedge, a serpent shall bite him. So Solomon is giving these two different scenarios. The first scenario is somebody who digs a pit. So there might've been different reasons for somebody to dig a pit. Perhaps they were being mischievous, but there were practical reasons too to have to dig a pit. Uh, now we're just used to having indoor plumbing and you turn on the faucet and water comes and shows up, you know, inside the sink. Uh, but back in the day, you didn't have that. And so if you were not near a, a good source of water, then you had to go digging for it. And so they would dig wells and they would go searching for water and dig down until they found the well, you know, the water running underneath and dig down to get a well. Uh, but of course, if you just dig a hole in the ground, somebody could easily fall into it. 
You know, maybe it gets dark and it, it's nighttime, or maybe you're just not paying attention. You could easily fall into it. You could easily hurt yourself. And so there's this one scenario where if you have a pit, what should you do? You should build a wall around it, right? You know, if you see the old pictures of the wells, it's not just a hole in the ground. They usually have like a little wall around it, right? Sometimes even a roof, make sure things don't fall into the well. The second scenario is a person who sees a wall that is already there and tears it down, right? Whoso breaketh an hedge or tears apart a wall, uh, a serpent shall bind him. So here's another person in a different scenario. Maybe he buys a house, uh, maybe he buys a, a new farmland or, you know, moves into a new city and sees this wall. And uh, he's thinking about, this is where I am, that's where I want to go, and there's this wall here, right in the middle. And uh, maybe he wonders, why is this wall here? This wall doesn't make sense. I, I want to go over there. It doesn't really make any sense why there would be this wall here. And it's possible for the person to think, you know what, I, this wall doesn't make sense. I'm just going to tear it down, right? It's inconveniencing me. So I'm going to tear down this wall and uh, be on my way. My life will be so much better. So here's these two scenarios. One who needs to build a wall. The other who sees a wall and needs to preserve the wall instead of take it down. So Solomon is warning us about the importance of walls and boundaries. Now, what are these walls that Solomon's talking about? Because he's obviously not really referencing physical walls, what is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual walls. He's trying to make spiritual application here. He's talking about having some spiritual boundaries in our lives. We might use another word, the word rules. It's good to have rules in our lives. It's good to have boundaries. It's good to have some things that are off limits in your life. Things that you won't do because you've built a wall around it. Things that you won't say, places you won't go, maybe even people that you won't hang out with, places that you'll stay away from. And you'll put those boundaries or rules in your life for a reason. Because the purpose of these walls is to protect you. The wall exists for your safety. And we appreciate those kinds of things. If you go out into nature, maybe you go over to, you know, these big, uh, uh, you know, uh, landmarks or things like that. You go to the Grand Canyon, you go to some of these places, uh, or you just want to go see the sites. They'll have these fences right on the edge of the cliff. Nobody thinks that the fence is there blocking my freedom. Nobody thinks that. They think, praise the Lord for a fence that will keep me safe from falling off the edge of a cliff, Right. Now, building a fence in a random place, of course, is one thing, but good fences, good walls, good boundaries keep us safe. And we do that for physical things. We should also do that for spiritual things. We should be in the habit of building walls in our lives, boundaries, uh, 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 things that we'll put in our lives to keep us safe. Let's return back to the same scenarios. The first scenario is somebody who doesn't have a boundary that needs to build one. There's a pit that is there. Obviously, you could fall into it. Obviously, you could get hurt by it. So you need to build a boundary around it. 
And I think in the day in which we live, we're experiencing rapid changes in things like technology. And that necessitates building new boundaries, new walls, new things that we'll think about, you know what, uh, maybe we need to have a new wall here, a rule in my life spiritually that will keep me safe. Because I don't know if you know this, but the internet is full of wicked spiritual dangers. And we would do well to have boundaries around those dangers. And you would do well. Now, you might think, well, I'm a pretty smart guy. I've got two eyes. You know, I can, I can easily step around the hole that is there in the ground. It might be very easy for one of us to think that. If you, da if you dug down a pit, you might step back from that and say, there's obviously a pit there. I would obviously never voluntarily step into that pit, right? But easily in a moment of distraction, maybe in a moment when it's a little dark, uh, maybe in a moment when you're with a friend and you're talking with them or not paying attention to exactly where you're going, you could easily fall into the pit. So what will be good for us in a physical situation is to build a wall around it. If there's a wall around the pit, you'll hit the wall and know, you know what, I'm glad the wall was there and saved me from falling into the pit. And I think for us spiritually, it'll be good for us to maybe put up some spiritual boundaries in our lives. Let's consider the second scenario. There is a boundary that is in existence already, and perhaps we don't understand the need for that boundary, right? Because if we understood the need for the boundary, we would just keep it up. But perhaps you run into a boundary, a wall, that you don't understand why it's there. Why is this boundary, why is this wall even here? It doesn't make sense. And the hasty in spirit might say, I don't understand why it's here. I'm going to get rid of it. But Solomon warns us, don't be so quick to tear down the walls. Be slow to tear them down. It takes time to build them up, but it can be taken down almost instantly. So be very careful about tearing down the walls. One author wrote it this way. It, kind of writing in a little bit older English. I'm going to read a little bit, but bear with me. I think there's a great illustration here. In the matter of reforming things as distinct from deforming them, there is one plain and simple principle, a principle which will probably be called a paradox. There exists in such a case, let us say for the sake of simplicity, a fence or gate erected across a road. The more modern type of reformer goes daily up to it and says, I don't see the use of it. Let us clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer, if you do not see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then when you can come back and tell me that you do see the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it. It's kind of an odd, you know, kind of set of circumstances. He's proposing, if you don't understand why it's there, then you can't take it down. If you do understand why it's there, then you might be able to take it down. Now, why is this? Because 
this paradox, I'm reading again, rests on the most elementary common sense. The gate or fence did not grow there. It is highly improbable that it was put there by escaped lunatics who were for some reason loose in the streets. Some person had some reason for thinking it would be good, a good thing for somebody. And until we know what the reason was, we really cannot judge whether the reason was reasonable. It is extremely probable that we have overlooked some whole aspect of the question. If something set up by human beings like ourselves seems to be entirely meaningless and mysterious. There are reformers who get over this difficulty by assuming that all their fathers were fools. But if that be so, we can only say that folly appears to be a hereditary disease. He brings up a good point, which is basically this. Godly people who have put up boundaries would have done so for good reason, right? I mean, if they're good and loving and caring and godly, they wouldn't just put up random barriers to hinder people for no reason at all. They would have put it there for a reason, thinking this would be helpful. This could keep some people safe. This might protect some people. The illustration here is, whoso breaketh the hedge, a serpent shall bite him. I don't understand why this fence is here and tears it down, and lo and behold, the critters come in, and they are hurt by it. And you never know what can come in through those broken down barriers that can hurt you if you don't understand why the barrier was there in the first place. Think about your kids. You know, I got two kids, I got a third on the way, and we have uh, rules for our kids. Now, whether our kids understand the rules or not, why we have the rules, doesn't matter for them. They have to obey the rule because we have a good reason for the rule. In fact, sometimes we didn't even know we needed a rule until our kids did something and we were like, all right, we need a rule here to help them, to stop them, to protect them. You know, one of the basic rules is uh, we don't let our kids, you know, uh, cross the street by themselves. They can't just run around in uh, the parking lot. We tell them, you're gonna be here, you have to be with us. And uh, oftentimes, especially with uh, with my second child, I'll, I'll always hold the hand, you know, our older child's getting a little bit older, but we, we hold their hand and make sure that we hold their hand while they're in the parking lot. And we try to explain it to them. It's a dangerous place. There are cars coming in and out. There's obviously lots of other cars. They can't always see you. They don't know that you're there. So it's a very dangerous place. And so as mature adults, we're looking out for all of these dangers and protecting our kids. And so holding on to our hand is the boundary that protects them from danger, okay? Now, our kids don't always, when they're young, and your kids, every kid, doesn't always understand why that rule is there. But if you're a parent, you completely know why the rule is there. And we probably won't let our kids break the rule until they understand fully what the rule is about. 
that it's, you know, one day they're going to be able to walk through the parking lot without holding their hand. You know, with a, you know it's not like they're going to be, you know, 35 years old. All right, hold my hand. We're going to the parking lot, you know. You know, they'll become adults. They'll be able to see and recognize and know these things. And, and uh, they'll be able to understand why the rule was there. When they understand why the rule is there, then they will for themselves be able to decide whether or not, you know, how they should behave in that situation. So Solomon is warning us about boundaries, building new boundaries when necessary and keeping ones up, even if sometimes we don't always understand why they are there. We need boundaries in our lives, rules we will not break and lines we will not cross. You know, sometimes there are boundaries that are put in place that people don't always understand. And uh, for each of you as individual believers, you know, you're going to make the rules for your own life. And uh, if you have a family, maybe you're married or you're living in your parents' home, you're going to have rules in your family. Here at the church, you know, the rules are primarily set by Pastor Choi, and then I'm also in charge of making certain rules. And I understand that some people don't always understand why the rules are there. They see that we have a rule that doesn't make sense to them, and because it doesn't make sense to them, they freely do what they want. And as an individual believer, you will stand in account before, your, uh, before the Lord by yourself. I'm, I'm not accountable for, you know, those decisions. I'm accountable for preaching the word of God faithfully, guiding, counseling, leading, all of those things. But you ultimately have to make the own decision for your life. But there are certain rules that are here at the church that people don't understand. And they just say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. One of the rules that we have is a dress code. We have a dress code here at the church. You know, I have a dress code for myself. There's a dress code for the teachers here. Uh, if you're going to teach in a kid's class, if you're going to teach in the adult class, if you're going to teach in one of the classes, you have a dress code. You have to meet the certain standards of the dress code. And I understand that, you know, there might be a number of people here that would think that rule doesn't make sense. None of my friends do that. I have other people that I know, they go to other churches and they don't do that. And uh, my parents didn't do that. I never saw anybody do that. And uh, it doesn't make sense to them. And I fully acknowledge that. And also I acknowledge that maybe other good uh, godly people might have different rules for them. They might have a different church and, and they're accountable before the Lord for that. But can I encourage you to at least try to fully understand why the rule is there in the first place. There are biblical reasons for that about dressing in modesty. There's also certain standards of if we are going to worship the Lord, we ought to give our best to the Lord. We also have certain standards in order to try to help people as they grow older. You know, sometimes I hear parents complaining about how their kids dress. And uh, they think, oh, I can't believe that they're wearing that and doing this. And I, I, I just honestly think, well, I saw them do that when they were seven years old. I saw them do that when they were nine years old and maybe when they were four years old, it was kind of cute. But then now that they're grown adults, they're a little bit embarrassed to do that. And I think, well, you would have been good to put a boundary at a young age to help them to understand the rule. Another rule is uh, in regards to dating. Here's what I would recommend that if you are single 
and you're a believer, you're saved, you're a child of God, you ought to have as a rule that you will only date other Christians. Right? That ought to be a boundary in your life. Now, some people might say, well, I don't see the big deal about it. You know, this person seems really nice. We really get along. And, and I acknowledge, too, sometimes I'll meet somebody who's uh, not saved. They're not a believer. They might even openly acknowledge that they're not saved. and They seem perfectly nice. They're wonderful. They're great. And all of these things. And, and, uh, but the Bible makes it clear, 2 Corinthians 6, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. We have to be very careful about these uh, uh, relationships, friendships as well. What kinds of persons and people should you surround yourself with? Oftentimes the basic criteria is whoever's cool, funny, and popular. You know, we want to be around those kinds of people, but we need to be careful. The Bible makes it clear. Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? So we have to be careful of these things, setting up boundaries from the beginning, setting them in place, leaving them in place, allowing for us to maybe even get some good godly counsel and asking, here is a boundary and a rule. Uh, what's the reasoning for that? And, uh, you know, I'm sure that there have been different rules that churches had in the past that we don't have today. The different things that they used to do in the past that we don't do today. Uh, you know, if you go back to one of the old churches that George Washington used to attend, uh, if you, you know, gave to the church, you would actually have a designated pew. And there'd be a little door surrounding the pew and you would have your own little section. And uh, that's not something that we do. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. But, you know, there can be uh, certain times when maybe something was appropriate a long time ago, but it's different today. All right. So, in terms of maybe little things that might seem like, this doesn't seem like such a big deal, as we've seen, for instance, with the example of vitamin C, tiny, minuscule things can affect you greatly. So make sure that you set your boundaries well. Secondly, solid buildings. Verse number nine, whoso removeth stones shall be hurt therewith, and he that cleaveth wood shall be endangered thereby. So here again, let's take the illustration that Solomon is giving. In America, we build homes out of like wood. You know, you have a foundation, then you have wood framing, you got siding, you have uh, insulation, you have drywall, you know, a regular house that we have here today. Uh, but in the old days, if you go back to, you know, Israel, you go back to Europe, you go back to, you know, those older countries, if you will, uh, a lot of the buildings are made out of stone. They're built out of brick. And... Uh, you know, if you've ever seen some of these uh, old brick buildings, these old stone buildings, you know, just over time, certain things can kind of, you know, fall apart. You know, in, in our modern homes, you might have siding that, you know, gets messed up or warped or something happens. The roof gets old. One of the things that would happen to these brick houses or could happen to brick houses is the bricks can come loose. And maybe you've even seen that. So imagine that you're walking along the side of your house and you see a brick that kind of seems a little off. And you're thinking, oh, did something happen here? And you touch the brick and it, you can tell that it's loose. So loose, in fact, that you could pull it out. Imagine if you pulled the, the brick out and thought, huh, you know what? This brick was here for this wall. I pulled the brick out and nothing happened. The wall didn't collapse. 
the wall didn't suddenly start swaying, it's perfectly fine. Imagine thinking as you walk further along, there's another brick that has come loose. And you begin to pull that brick out and think, hey, what do you know? Look at that. Two bricks came out of this wall and nothing happened. The fool would think, I wonder how many bricks I could pull out before the wall falls over. Hey, you know what? Maybe I could get the best of both worlds. I could pull the bricks out, sell the bricks for money, and still have a wall at the same time. It's a win-win situation, right? The wise man would know the brick must be there for a reason. <laughs> the wall doesn't need most of the bricks. The wall needs every brick. Now, it might be true that you might be able to pull one brick out and it's not like the whole house is going to collapse. You know, it's not like your house is like a Jenga, you know, tower and you pull the wrong one out and the whole thing falls over. As reasonable people, we understand your wall needs every brick. And as reasonable people, we understand that you can't just be pulling things out of the wall. The other illustration that he uses is in, in verse number nine, whoso removeth stones shall be hurt therewith, and he that cleaveth wood shall be endangered thereby. Let's bring it back to the modern age. Let's say we're building a house out of wood. You know, you get these wood beams, you know, and you get these two by sixes or two by eights or things like that. And they're supposed to be spaced every so, you know, maybe 18 inches apart or something like that. You know what? If you went over there and you're like, you know what? Costs are running high, inflation, you know, uh, wood lumber is really expensive right now. Why don't we just take out every other wooden, you know, uh, piece of wood there? Or how about this? Let's leave all the wood there, but instead of using two by eights, let's just cut them all in half and just use half every 18 inches. And uh, you might stand there and look at it and be like, it's not falling over. Seems totally fine. Solomon is saying, the person who builds houses like that is going to get hurt because the wall is going to fall. Now, Im immediately, you might not notice anything. Immediately, you might not think, you know what? I think this wall is going to fall over. We got to put the brick back. But we all know, even if it doesn't fall over right away, it's been weakened. Being weakened, it can easily, slowly, over time, sometimes more quickly, begin to fall apart. So what is Solomon recommending for us? Leave every brick in the wall. Now, what does that mean? Let's consider our personal life. You know, we, we say here at the church that you should read your Bible every day. Amen. You should read your Bible every day. And I think every believer here would say, yeah, I agree with that. I should read my Bible every day. Now, we have the privilege of having the Bible with us all the time, but at the very least, being able to maybe memorize a verse and meditate upon it. Okay? So, we say... I'm sure all of us would agree, you should read your Bible every day. But think about the last time that you didn't read your Bible on a day. Did you fall over and die? I didn't read my Bible and I'm really, oh no. I'm sure for many of us, maybe if not all of us, the last time you didn't read your Bible, you thought at the end of the day, this was a day just like every other day, right? 
I had breakfast, just like yesterday. I went to work, just like yesterday. I had lunch, just like yesterday. I finished my job, just like yesterday. I drove to work and drove back, no problems, just like yesterday. I spent time with my family, and just like yesterday. There is no difference between today and yesterday, except yesterday I read the Bible, but today I didn't. We might be tempted to think, well, it's not like my whole life collapsed today. I must be fine. Maybe I can get away with reading my Bible today. Maybe I don't need to pray every day. Maybe I only need to think about God on Sundays or things like that. But if we take the principle, we understand if you keep pulling bricks out of your life, guess what's going to happen? At first, the wall might seem like it's perfectly fine. But the more you pull out, the quicker it will collapse. You know how walls collapse? They don't collapse slowly. They usually collapse suddenly. It seems fine until suddenly when it isn't. Maybe it's because of an earthquake. Maybe because just you pull one too many bricks out and your wall really is now a Jenga tower and it begins to cascade and the whole thing falls over. But Solomon is warning us, leave every brick there. And determine that you're not going to make exceptions. You're not going to say, you know what, today I'm especially busy. Maybe I could get away without doing that. Maybe I'm in a really busy time, so maybe I could just really pull back in this very important area in our lives spiritually. Let's consider your family. Husbands are to love their wives. Wives are to submit themselves unto their own husbands. Parents, we are to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Children are supposed to obey their parents. Now, obviously, I'm the father and I'm the husband in my home. And so, uh, you know, uh, we have busy times here at the church. Uh, there are times when often, you know, just like when you have busy times at your work, you know, I might not take a day off and, uh, or I might take a day off but kind of you know, do different things here and there. I might work a little bit later on this day or that day and, and all sorts of different things that I might do, just like you might do uh, here and there for different things. And, and it might be easy to think, you know what, I uh, did all of this extra stuff here at the church for the ministry, doing all of these different things, and I came home to my family and, you know, maybe they were asleep you know, my kids are sleeping already. My wife is, you know, has been tired. Maybe she's in bed already and uh, might have a short conversation. But, you know, if you work a long time, you're exhausted. And so, you know, I might uh, put my head on my pillow and just instantly fall asleep. And at the end of the week, I might see my kids and my kids might still be like, Daddy, oh, I love you. And, you know, you want to play with me. And I might think, you know what? Maybe I don't need to spend time with my kids every single day. They still love me. They still want to play with me. They still want to do things with me. And, and uh, they'll listen to me and they ask me for, you know, approval or they ask me for advice. It might be easy to think that. But you can't do that week after week after week after week after week. You can't do that month after month after month after month after month. You can't do that year after year after year and think that when your kids are now teenagers, suddenly they're going to ask you for all of the advice. You pulled too many bricks out of the wall. And now the wall of relationship has crumbled. And it's going to take a long time to build the wall back up. That's why Solomon warns us, leave every brick there. Don't leave it to chance. Make sure it is strong and it stands. Let's consider your church. 
First Peter chapter 2, verse number 5 says, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. So God describes the church as a house, and we members of the church are stones in the building of the house. It's easy to think, you know what? I'm a little bit busy right now. I can't make it to the church service. And the church just continued on on a regular service on Sundays without you, and everything seemed fine, right? I'm still up here preaching. Maybe Brother Robbie's still leading songs, and the Life Connection teachers are still teaching their classes, and it's easy to think, you know what? Maybe, uh, maybe I don't have to be here all the time. Maybe I could just come in whenever it's convenient. Maybe I could just serve whenever I feel like it, and maybe that'll be okay. I mean, because look at all the events. They're still doing the events. They're still reaching people. Look, people are getting added to the church, and maybe I don't need to be here. But Solomon's recommendation again is don't pull stones out of the wall. In this case, the illustration is the church. The church is made of its members. Don't pull the stones out of the wall. Don't pull yourself away from the church. Your church needs you. Amen. Your church needs every one of you. Your church will be stronger when you participate. Your church will be stronger when you commit yourself to the Lord. You know what, God, you put me here in this church, and I'm going to be involved in this church, and I'm going to serve in this church, and I'm going to do what I can in the church, and I'm going to follow your direction and leading here in this church. Your church needs you. It's tempting to think, you know what, maybe the church doesn't need me, but what wall doesn't need all of the bricks? Which body doesn't need all of its members? Think about, you know, the illustration again. God describes the church as a body. You know, which of your body parts are you willing to part with? Right? We would say none of them. Can you survive without a pinky finger? Of course you can. Of course you can. Can you survive without even like an arm or a leg? Of course you can. But you wouldn't voluntarily do it. You need them all. You want them all. And in your mind, you don't think I want them all. You know what you think? I need them all. I need all of my toes. I need all of my fingers. I need every body part. And that's the way God thinks of his body as well. I need every part that is here. Keep the stones there. Thirdly and lastly, we see sharpened blades. Verse number 10. If the iron be blunt and he do not wet the edge, then must he put more uh, to more strength, but wisdom is profitable to direct. The illustration here, of course, is simple. By iron, he means a knife or an axe. And he says, if you're going to use the axe, you have to sharpen it. If you're going to use the knife, you have to sharpen it. And even if it's sharp at the beginning, the more you use it, the duller it gets. So you have to regularly sharpen it. All right? Abraham Lincoln is quoted as saying, uh, give me six hours to chop down a tree and I will spend the first four sharpening the axe. Now that seems a little bit excessive, but I think it gets the point across that we don't spend enough time sharpening the axe. We spend more time swinging the axe than we do sharpening it. And we need to be sharpened. Now, we're not talking about sharpening things like the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Lord is the Word of God. 
The word of God doesn't need to be sharpened. God keeps himself sharp at every moment. So he's not talking about that. What is he talking about? He's talking not about other things. He's talking about us. I need to be sharpened to be useful in the hand of the Lord. I must be sharpened. And the more that I am sharpened, the more effective I will be. Just like you want a sharp knife to be able to cut effectively. You want a sharp axe to be able to chop down quickly. You need to be sharpened as well. Proverbs chapter 3, verse number 2. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. If you gain wisdom, you will get length of days and long life. The phrase, the length of days, is what I want to focus on because uh, you might read the phrase and think that just means I'll have many days. That's not what the Bible means there when he says for length of days because right after that, what does he say? And long life. Long life means many days. What does he mean uh, when he says for length of days? He doesn't mean many days. He means your days will be long. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. What does it mean? It means your days will be longer. Now, we've all heard the phrase, we all have the same 24 hours in a day, right? The sun rises at the same time for everybody here, and it sets at the same time for everybody. But the point is this, those that grow in wisdom are sharpened, and the wise get more out of their minutes than the fool does out of his hours. Oh, the fool can hack away at the tree all day long and not cut down anything, but the wise sharpen the axe and are effective and make a difference and cut down the tree. Sometimes sharpening means that we can be spread too thin, right? That's why dull knives and dull axes don't work. It's too flat on the edge. And so instead of penetrating deep in a single point, it's spread broad across, you know, an area. And sometimes as Christians, we can be spread abroad in too many areas. We can have too many uh, uh, pots on the fire. We can have too many balls that we're trying to juggle at the same time. Too many things going on in our lives. We would do well to think what are the most effective things and the most important things, and let's just do those. Instead of thinking, let's do everything, Think about what are the most important things and let's make a difference there. Because if you're spread too thin, guess what? You're not going to make a difference in any of those places. Pick a place, pick a spot, and apply yourself there. Also, sharpening needs to be regular. You can't sharpen your knife once and say, it's good forever. <laughs> it's going to get dull. So you need to regularly sharpen the knife. And a good indication that knives need to be sharpened is when it's less effective. For us as Christians, you know what's a great indicator? When we're less effective. When we think I'm doing the same thing that I did before, and yet I'm not seeing any difference. Now, of course, we know that there are seasons. Of course, we know that there are ups and downs in ministry. So we need to take kind of a broader look at things, maybe a, more than just a day or a week. Maybe we need to take a look at more than just a month. We might have to take a look at, you know, broad spans of our life and think, you know what? I, I remember two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, how effective I felt like I was. And I'm doing the same thing today, but I don't see or feel the same kind of effect. That might be a good indication that you need to be sharpened. One of the goals here in the services is that you would be sharpened. 
That's the point of sitting in the service. The point of sitting in a preaching service is that we would be sharpened, that God's word would be applied to our lives and we will be sharpened so that we could go out and be useful and be effective as we go out into the world. Sometimes people think that the work of the ministry is done here at the church. Don't think of it that way uh, in terms of sitting in the service, just sitting here. Uh, What I mean is, the idea, one of the main goals of the service is that every person here, every believer would be sharpened, leaving the service then, you would be effective in ministry. Now, sometimes what that means is that you're sharpened here in the service and immediately you go find somebody and you encourage them in the Lord. Sometimes you are sharpened and you go into your Life Connection class and you're able to make a contribution into the class. Or maybe you just go and you begin to think, you know what, I need to be praying for my fellow church members and begin to pray for them. Maybe you're sharpened and you realize, you know what, I need to be a witness to my friends and you begin to go out and you tell them about Jesus Christ and you give them the gospel. Maybe that's the sharpening that is needed. But the point is that we need to be sharpened. One of the causes of burnout, I believe, is not sharpening ourselves enough. Because easily we could do the same thing and become less and less effective. Being less and less effective, guess what? We don't see any results. And you know, just as human beings, if we don't see any results, guess what? We get discouraged and sometimes we quit. And think, what am I doing here? Why am I even here? Uh, Nothing is changing. Uh, There's no difference here. Now, of course, we, we understand that God sometimes plants the seed and underground God is doing a lot of work before the plant sprouts and the flowers bloom. We understand all of these things, but it's definitely true also that sometimes we, we get discouraged and we get tired because we are dull. And sometimes we just need to go to the Lord, be sharpened so that we could be effective. It might seem like a little thing to read your Bible in the morning and have God sharpen your spirit in the morning. But it could be all the difference in the world to make the difference that you need to make that day. These seem like little things. Paying attention in a church service to the preaching, you know, making sure that you're there consistent, not making exceptions. Sometimes just putting up a simple boundary of, you know what, I'm not going to download this app on my phone. So it might seem like such a little thing, and yet some of these little things can make a huge, profound difference in our lives if we implement them.